Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts this evening. And help us again to open our minds and hearts to hear what you want us to hear. And to understand what you want us to understand. So that it goes from the mind and the heart to the heart. So give us the strength and the courage to set aside the cares of the day and preconceived notions so that we can be open to what the Spirit says to us through all that is discussed here tonight. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things in Jesus' name. Tonight we're going to be discussing the four major developments or the four major groupings of the Old Testament and sort of how they came to be. Uh, but before we begin that, I'd like to ask how many of you have sort of scratched your head and said for the past two weeks, uh, why are we bothering with these four timetables or the four periods of Old Testament history? Anyone? Come on, be honest now. Oh, why? No one. Hey, ah, I hope I hope you've at least given some thought to it. Anyways, of course I've sort of gone over it quite a bit. But the reason that the four time periods are important to understand the Old Testament is because the Old Testament came out of the history of those time periods. When Solomon, or at least we think it was Solomon, perhaps David, but Solomon more likely, encouraged the writing down of the Jewish histories, it was the opinions and the thoughts and the understandings of the people at that time, and there were four different groups, as we've talked about before, that developed the histories of the Jewish people as they understood it. Now, the one thing that you have to understand is when you're writing something that has been handed down for hundreds of years, in some cases a thousand years, you're bound to not be accurate to the letter. But the histories that we have of the Jewish background is what really established the Old Testament scriptures. As they were written down and families would understand uh, what they were or, or what was all behind them and what had built up all of the rules and regulations, the laws, the customs, the traditions, to where they were now. And realize that those things are very important to them. In fact, one lady tonight said to me, it's overwhelming how all of the histories that have come together to us through the Old Testament leading up to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is overwhelming when you think about it and that it took all of that time and the people and the efforts and the writings 
to really culminate in the event of Jesus Christ. And so that is why we really want to emphasize those time periods because as we go through and discuss the book of Deuteronomy, you will see how the time periods, at least the first two, really affected the development of that book and even into parts of the third. Uh, Conversely, it was the writings in the New Testament that created history. From the Old Testament, history developed the scriptures. In the New Testament, it was the writings of the New Testament that created some of our history. In fact, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is what started the persecutions between the Jewish people and the Christians, the new Christians, and eventually brought in the Romans who destroyed Jerusalem and Israel and the temple in 70 AD, the temple never to be built, rebuilt again. And excuse me, technically, there are no Jewish temples. Although you may see them, uh, or may see on a building, uh, temple such and such, technically that is not true. There are no authentic Jewish temples. They are all synagogues. The difference between a temple and a synagogue is that a temple is the only place that animal sacrifice could be offered. That was established way back by King David, back around the 10th century B.C. Uh, There is a great amount of controversy in the first book of Kings uh, about the idea of having a central place for offering official sacrifice. And that eventually was established as Jerusalem and the temple there. But once the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, it did away with animal sacrifice in the way it was carried out for worship purposes. All right? So there, there is no more animal sacrifice in the Jewish literatures or ceremonies. And all of the temple, all of the places of worship, Jewish worship today, are synagogues or houses of prayer. Now, it's kind of important that you sort of understand that. The Old Testament scriptures came out of history. In the New Testament, scriptures caused history. All right? Not only that, but later on, as uh, the handout that you've got shows, uh, there are a number of things established by the Catholic Church that also affected global history. One is the establishment of the Prime Meridian and the uh, International Dateline. Uh, the other one, of course, uh, is the establishment of the Gregorian calendar. There was no accepted, truly accepted global calendar until the middle of the 16th century. 
uh, Gregory the thirteenth, I think it is, uh, is the one who finally established the global calendar. All nations accept it, regardless of faith or uh, religion or lack of thereof. Uh, they all accept the same calendar uh, for religious purposes. Uh, some uh, some groups of people, such as the Greek Orthodox, have a slightly different calendar, but that's for religious purposes only, etc. Uh, and there are a number of things established that really created history or affected history, affected uh, society in general in a global sense. That did not happen until after uh, the time of Christ. But I want to stick with the Old Testament uh, and how it came to be, which is our, our subject of, of tonight. Before we begin, are there any uh, burning questions that you all must get out and get discussed? All right. The first major group of books of the Old Testament is the first five. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All right. They together make up what the Jewish people call the Torah or the law. In Paul, St. Paul's letters, particularly Romans, uh, but also in lesser degree in the other writings, he uses the term the law and he is referring to the Jewish Pentateuch or the first five books. The word Pentateuch comes from the word five books, all right? But it is a great derivative. Torah is the Hebrew. The law, it would be the English equivalent, all meaning the same thing, all right? All referring to the first five books of the Bible. And currently, all Bibles have the same five books, and in the same order. Whether they're Jewish scriptures or Catholic or Protestant, they are all in the same uh, order, in the same place. The word Genesis, the book of Genesis, the word Genesis itself is Greek for the word beginning. In the beginning, it was customary to write and name documents after the first major word appearing in the document. And coincidentally, in Vatican II, in the mid-1900s, 1962 to 65, the documents that came out of there um, take their name from the first major or first most important word in each of those documents. So if you see such as Lumen Gentium, it is really starts out, Jesus Christ is the light of the world. And that's where the words Lumen Gentium comes from. Okay. Um, all right. But let, let us get back to that. 
we last week talked a little bit about some of the origins and the way that that the first five books came together. And it's only these five that came together in this way. Uh, the others, which we'll get into shortly, uh, came together a little differently. But we have the J, E, D, and P. That's generally the order in which they are listed and also the order in which their time, they appeared in time. All right. Northern Kingdom, roughly late 10th century, early 9th century. Let's say 9th century B.C. L.O.M., Northern Kingdom. This is Southern Kingdom. This is Northern Kingdom. I think we went through that last week. All right. This is roughly 8th century. Deuteronomy is later 8th century or early 7th century. The priestly group, although it was in existence uh, during the 6th and 7th century, it did not really come in and affect the writings until the 5th century or even slightly later. The importance here is that at one time, the first five books of the Bible were all attributed to Moses. Moses wrote them. No, he didn't. Moses was long dead before they were even scratched on a piece of tablet or papyrus or whatever it was they used in those days. Okay. But Moses was the most influential person in the first five books, or primarily four books, all right? Uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Moses is not mentioned in the book of Genesis because it is before his time, all right? And coincidentally, the book of Genesis came primarily out of the 5th century after the other four books were written. Okay. The others, the other four books, and we'll even narrow it down to three, Leviticus, Numbers, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, I'm sorry. All right came out of primarily these two groups with a little bit of the priestly group. And what happened here is that, as I said, David or Solomon is the person that encouraged the beginning of the writing down. But you had people in the north and the south coming up with the same story, but a lot of differences. It wasn't until after the Babylonian exile ended, at the end of the 6th century, the beginning of the 5th century, 
that these were begin to be put together, begin to put, whatever the language is, yeah, I'll get my tongue straightened out. Uh, these were started to put together, right? They were sort of independently stored for several years. But it wasn't until the Babylonian exile when a lot of things happened. I have to give you a little explanation there. The people of the southern kingdom are the people who went to Babylon. The northern kingdom was overrun by the Assyrians in the end, towards the end of the 8th century and finally conquered and were wiped out because of their idolatry and apostasy. You have to understand that God was their sole king for many centuries. And after they started with David and Solomon, that worked out for a while, roughly 80 years. But then things got a little out of hand. Solomon's son could not handle them, so he broke the kingdom into two, north and south. And he wasn't very careful as to who he sort of gave the northern kingdom to, and he kept the southern kingdom to himself. Uh, And eventually, influences from pagan nations started to filter in to the Jewish people. And they were very susceptible uh, to whatever was new and exciting, and uh, therefore, idolatry and apostasy really crept in big time to the northern kingdom, to a lesser degree in the southern kingdom, but it did also. In 722 B.C., the northern kingdom was totally wiped up, either conquered and killed, or people were taken to Assyria and became slaves. The book of Deuteronomy, although written by the people in the northern kingdom, the book itself was not accepted by those people because they had gotten, they had become so influenced by these pagan uh, gods, etc., that they ignored it. But the book was written because of the recognition of what was happening. A small group of people in the north, we have to call them Deuteronomists because we have no other way to recognize who they were specifically. Those people realized what was going on and that God was very displeased with the idolatry that was creeping in to his chosen people and the promised land. So they took all of the writings that were in here, these two groups, all of the writings of Moses, all of the laws, all of the uh, traditions and customs that had developed from the time of Moses down to this time period and developed this book even though it repeated a lot of stuff that are in these two areas, 
That's why it's called Deuteronomy, the second telling. Okay. Because it emphasizes how wrong these people were and what their future would be if they continued in that direction. Once we start getting into the details of the book of Deuteronomy, you'll begin to see this. And I, but I want you to be aware of it ahead of time because it's important to understand how and why this book was developed. These two are primarily histories. This one is a retelling of much of this history, but it is condensed to be only the laws that affect the relationship of all of the people with God. And when it was rejected and the Assyrians overran the northern kingdom, this book finally made its way to the southern kingdom where it was also sort of rejected or neglected. And so it was sort of stuffed in the temple and kind of left there until the temple was destroyed. And just before it was destroyed, the temple was destroyed, uh, somebody, we're not certain who, somebody spirited it out and took it to Babylon with all of the exiles. So, in Babylon, the people sat around and wondered why and how did they ever get there. They had little to do. Now, remember, even though they, we call them slavery and so forth, it wasn't slavery as we think of slavery. They were more like indentured servants. The captors, the Babylonians, only took able-bodied men, women who could be nursemaids, seamstresses, teachers, uh, nursery attendants, etc. People that could do them some good. They left behind the old, the decrepit, little children, etc. who couldn't do them any good. So they weren't really the slaves as we think about it. But the people, once they got to Babylon, sat there and took them a while to figure out how did they get there and why. But finally, they did. Through the efforts of the prophet Ezekiel. Now, if you read the book of Ezekiel, it all sounds like gloom and doom. But there's a reason for it. Ezekiel is picking up, in a way, the same message that's in Deuteronomy and trying to get these people to straighten out and fly right, so to speak. To some degree, he succeeds. And once they are released and returned to Israel with the help of Cyrus the Great, the Persian, they brought the book of Deuteronomy back with them. They all agreed that they would start over with their relationship with God. The kingdom and the kingship and the monarchy was dissolved. And that is when the priestly group came into its own. It was the priestly group that took then these first two 
miscellaneous writings, because they were pretty much copies of each other's with variations, and put them into an order similar or close to what we have today. Now, we don't know exactly who, but all indications point to the priest Ezra. Ezra is considered one of the prophets, although he wasn't technically a prophet. He was more of a of a, a priest or a scribe, you might say. But most of the uh, indications are that it was Ezra who took the Yahwist, the Eloist, and a lot of his own, and established what we now have as the book of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. All right? Deuteronomy pretty much remained as it was originally written way back in the 8th century. But it was refined a little bit by the priestly group. Now, after they got those four books written and kind of established, they looked at what they had and said, hmm, we don't have a beginning. Because these people started with Abraham. Both groups started with Abraham and their remembrance and so forth. They had no beginning. It was the priestly group that took legends, customs, traditions, all kinds of stories that could be remembered, put them together and developed what we have as the book of Genesis, which gives us the creation stories, uh, the Noah and the Ark, Cain and Abel stories, the Tower of Babel. And if you look at that between the, the, the section of stories between the creation and the expulsion of Adam and Eve from the garden up to the call of Abraham. I think that's about from the fourth, fifth chapter to the twelfth chapter. <coughs> Seven or so chapters. What's in there are the stories of how the sin of Adam and Eve was increasing exponentially by the people in later time. Okay. The Cain and Abel story is all about uh, the whole idea of Cain killing Abel. Right. The Tower of Babel story is all about the people and it's primarily, primarily known for it, trying to explain how uh, different languages throughout the world were established. And it is a legend. It is not history. Okay. Even the Noah and the Ark story is talking about how sin and degradation, etc., and people forgetting God increased again over and over and God's method of punishing them. Right. But in each of those cases, God always comes to the rescue. God is always there, ready to forgive and to help them over the process or over the, the 
hump you might say. Every one of those stories shows the hand of God behind the story to help the sinner or sinners over and into realizing what they had done wrong and get back on the straight path. And that's true with those four time periods. Each one starts out with God interacting with mankind in some way or other. In the first one, it's the call of Abraham. In the second one, it is God telling the priest Samuel to anoint David because Saul turned out to be a lousy king, pardon the expression. But each of those ended in disaster. So, the second time period ends... (coughs) (coughs) excuse me, starts out, of course, with Moses bringing the people out of Israel, but it it ends with the disaster of King Saul. The third time period starts out with David, who was sort of handpicked by God himself, but it ends ends up with the Babylonian captivity because, again, of the idolatry. The third one starts out, or the fourth one, I'm sorry, starts out with the return of the exiles from Babylon through the efforts of Cyrus uh, the Great, or the Persian, but it ends up with what? The destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Again, because of the rejection of the true Messiah. So, much of this is history. A lot of it is in your Bibles. If you have the New New American Bible, the Catholic Study Bible, all of what I just told you is in there. Uh, So, if you have an opportunity, I recommend you read it. Starting on page 27 with the J. E, D, and P theory. Anyone have any questions on on these time? Uh, yes, the book of Deuteronomy primarily. If you read the second book of Kings, uh, Hezekiah is the one responsible for having some workmen. He was trying to repair the temple and the workmen found the book and brought it to him and he tried to get the people to take it seriously. Uh, unfortunately, that didn't work, and he didn't live too long, and his son uh, went back to uh, playing games again. Uh, so, But it was taken to Babylon, where it was read and taken seriously. That is chapters 4 through, well, not 4, Chapter what we call chapter four verses forty five through chapter twenty nine was taken to Babylon. Uh, chapters one through four verses forty four was written afterwards and added on. Okay. And that's true with many of the books that we have in the Bible, not only Old Testament but New Testament. They <coughs> many of them were written in various pieces and 
had other pieces added to them later on. Okay. I want to get on to the other uh, portions of the Bible because we've got uh, a lot to cover. The historical books. These are often referred to as the Deuteronomistic. You want to re- say that, you know? Deuteronomistic. Yeah. Histories. And that is because they cover many of the things that these people also cover. But when they were redeveloped or redacted is the term that Bible scholars use in the 5th or 5th century by Ezra or somebody like that. They were kind of pulled apart. For example, the book of Exodus has only four major points in it. The release of the Israelites from Egypt, the giving of the Ten Commandments, the wandering in the desert, and the preparation for entry into the Promised Land. All of the other traditions and histories surrounding that 40 years are found in the book of Numbers and Leviticus. Okay. Leviticus in itself is almost exclusively um, devoted to giving us various rituals or liturgies within the ancient Jewish faith. Numbers gives us a lot of traditions of tradition of what happened during that 40 years of wandering in the desert other than the Ten Commandments and, and so forth that is in Exodus. So, Ezra, let's use that name, although I have to use it with some qualifications, but Ezra pulled a lot of these stories apart and separated them into the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. All right? Deuteronomy was pretty much written. As I said, the end of chapter 4 through 29 was all written by the people in the north and remained that way. Chapters 1 through 40, uh, 1 through 4, was added on by the priestly group. And you can tell that uh, when you understand what I just wrote up here and compare back, because the style is quite a bit different. All right? Okay. The historical books are 12 books. Oh, 16, 16, 16 books. Yeah, sorry. 16 books that covered a wide range of time and subject. Three or four of them are non-historical, but they are all stories that portray Jewish history. All right? I hesitate to use the word fiction because people will go, oh! And, yes, sacrilegious, yes. Uh, I remember the first time I used it. I'll never forget the first time I used it. It, it was like <coughs> I was saying 
that, you know, the scriptures were some dirty word or whatever. And that's not the case. These stories, beautiful as some of them are, particularly the, the book of Ruth, the book of Esther, uh, Tobit, uh, even though they are, pardon the expression, fiction, they have a theological uh, thought running through them or are a theological reflection and therefore inspired and worthy of being uh, included in sacred scripture. They are very important. We have a number of other uh, books that are the same way that fall <coughs> into the wisdom books. Okay, The book of Job. Right, the book of um, Jonah. Those are fiction or non-historical, pardon me, um, because they are a theological reflection inspired by the Holy Spirit and worthy of being included in either the Old Testament or, in some cases, uh, the New Testament. Okay, so don't be overly Concerned if I say that some of those books are fiction. Yes. Um, the people who um, listen to the genealogy of Matthew then believe they were not true. So there are stories, but not historically. Because this is a genealogy of Matthew. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's a hard question to answer with yes or no. All right. Because. <coughs> Most of the people were illiterate at the time, all right? And therefore, they couldn't question whoever wrote that. Um, so they had to take it uh, as being true. We have found out that it isn't exactly correct, but it's not that important because it's in there to make a different kind of point. You see, God promised that uh, there would always be someone on the throne of David that would be faithful to him. And this is in there to prove that Jesus Christ is born of the house of David and fulfills that particular prophecy. So maybe the people are real, but the story around it? Well, yeah. And there could be some missing also, because... One of the things that uh, developed after David or Solomon began to encourage the writing down is that histories and records became very important. Up till this point in time, they weren't that important. Genealogies were, but other histories were not. Uh, now, every time that a nation was conquered, and overrun by another nation, the first thing they would do is destroy all the records, all the histories, because, in essence, that destroys their identity. So, Matthew, in writing that, uh, had very little to go by in reaching back to some of those names, other than just tradition. Okay? Let's get out of the historical books. As I said, these cover a wide range of subjects and time periods. <clears throat> but they give us the histories primarily from the time of the 
Israelites' entry into the promised land. Moses presumably had died, left his charge with Joshua and Caleb, bringing them into the promised land. Somewhere around the uh, 14th century B.C. And it is covering pretty much the time from 14th century B.C. down to the 2nd century uh, B.C. with the uh, Maccabees. The War of the Maccabees uh, to conquer or overrun the Greek Seleucid kings that are talked about in the subject of the book of Daniel. So, uh, I don't know how else to describe them. They're interesting stories, but for some reason or other, they have not played a a big uh, role in our uh, liturgies, but they are interesting, particularly 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles. Uh, 1 and 2 Samuel is also. Those three really uh, bring forth the whole idea of the beginning of the Jewish monarchy and some of the problems that uh, that in itself created. Uh, Ruth, Judith, Esther, uh, and Tobit are all non-fiction. I mean, non-historical, pardon me. I'm getting, getting myself mixed up here. Okay, non-historical. But... Um, yeah, it's right on here. <clears throat> Ruth, Tobit, Judith, and Esther are non-historical, right at the bottom. Now, one of my favorite groups of books in the Old Testament, and these are heavily used in our mass liturgies today are the wisdom books. Unfortunately, much or many of these wisdom books were eliminated or, well, let's, let's go on and I'll talk about that when we get down to the Deuterocanonical books. All right. The wisdom books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes or Koheleth, Song of Songs, sometimes called the Songs of David or the Songs of Solomon, uh, Wisdom and Sirach, which is also known by Ecclesiasticus. All right. Ecclesiastes and Ecclesiasticus uh, both refer to church assemblies or church book. Okay. Uh, the first one, uh, Ecclesiastes is uh, the person who calls the assembly. That's what that is referred to. Ecclesia is the Eng- is the Jew- uh, is the Greek word for assembly or church. Okay. And so one is a church book, and the other one is the presider or the caller of a uh, an assembly. Because that's what that means. Okay. <clears throat> Some of these are not included also in the uh, Hebrew 
or some Protestant Bibles. But they are all beautiful books, particularly the Psalms. If you are not accustomed to praying, and you should be, you should be, because prayer is, to me, the most important lifeline between God and mankind. Okay? All of this knowledge in your head is not going to do you a bit of good if you don't take it into prayer. And if you're not accustomed to praying, I suggest that you start reading the Psalms. Now, not all of them are going to be meaningful to you. But out of 150 Psalms, and all Bibles have 150 Psalms. They are numbered differently in some Bibles, but there's still 150 in all Bibles. But out of 150 Psalms, some of them are going to be very meaningful to you. And you will want to read them over and over. All right? Um, when you go to confession, you all say some form of the act of contrition. If you read Psalm 51, that is probably the most beautiful act of contrition that you can possibly read. And it applies to everyone. And there's so many others, such as Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 27, one thing I long for is to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. All right? Even Jesus Christ quoted from the Psalms many, many times. And the last time was from the crucif- when he was crucified and <clears throat> living, uh, still living uh, and nailed to the cross. He yells out, my God, my God, why are you forsaken me? Or why have you forsaken me? Which is the beginning of Psalm 22. So, the Psalms are extremely important. And, of course, in our daily and Sunday Mass, the responsorial psalm, obviously, comes from the Psalms. Okay? Occasionally, they will be taken from some other Old Testament scripture, but almost always are from the Psalms. Beautiful, beautiful prayers, and I highly recommend them. But, uh, the books of Wisdom and Sirach. Sirach is another one of those books that is not in the Hebrew Bibles and, well, of course, they, they don't call them Bibles, Hebrew Scriptures and the Protestant Bibles, okay? But these are beautiful, uh, writings, very meaningful, very important. Proverbs. We use quotations for the Proverbs uh, for many reasons. Proverbs were uh, Proverbs were established long before they were written down. Many of them come from uh, Egyptian backgrounds, way during the time of, or before Moses, uh, during the time the Israelites were in Egypt for three or four hundred years. Uh, many of the Psalms also pick up traditions that were acquired while still in Babylon. The Psalms were not written down in book form until the second century B.C. Proverbs were written down over a period of time and collected into a book about the same time. 
Sirach was written a little bit sooner, but it was a reflection on the writings of the grandfather. So, these are extremely important books for devotional purposes. They are not histories. Even the book of Job, which again is not, is non-historical, and it is a book that emphasizes the goodness of God and our need to rely on him under all kinds of conditions. If you read the book of Job, it's somewhat depressing in a way, but it comes out with a beautiful ending. Not that he lived happily ever after, although that's pretty much uh, the way it reads. Nevertheless, uh, it's a beautiful book. Okay. Now, I want to get to the prophets. The writings of the prophets, probably the longest group of writings in the Old Testament. There are 15 prophets, three major and 12 minor. The three major prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And all of the others make up what they call the minor prophets. Now, that doesn't mean that the major ones are more important than the minor. It just means that the writings of the three so-called major prophets are far more extensive and become more useful for God's purposes, um, more so than ours. All right? The minor prophets, it's not because of their writings are not important, but it's because uh, they are, they cover less uh, territory, you might say. And they're listed not by the time that they appeared on the scene, but they are listed in the volume of words in their writings. Now, you might think that that's kind of a strange way of listing them with the, the guy who wrote the most becomes first, and then the next guy who wrote a little bit less, and so forth and so on. But um, that's the way they are, and that's the way that we accept them. It's interesting that the letters of St. Paul are listed in the New Testament in the same way, by volume. Not when they were written, but by volume of words. Okay, Not by importance, but solely by volume. That was apparently a, a proper thing to do when you couldn't list them any other way. And part of that is because the prophets came on the scene at various times after the monarchy was established. So, from the 9th century B.C. down to the 5th century B.C. is the time of the literary prophets. And when I say literary prophets, I'm referring to those who left writings. There were two or three other prophets, such as Elijah and Elisha, uh, who did not leave any writings. All right, They were much earlier in time. But these prophets, the 15 literary prophets, came and went during the third major period of Old Testament history. And they were brought into the scene by God to counter 
the evil that had been brought into the monarchy and the Jewish people uh, by the wanderings of their rulers into paganism. Now, you might say, well, you know, why didn't God sort of wipe out those rulers and keep it nice and clean? Well, that would have taken away their free will and the people's free will. But the prophets were brought in to preach that (coughs) the rulers were wrong and what the people would be facing if they continued with their idolatrous ways. Excuse me. It's very very important to understand this balance. When we've talked at the end of previous uh, sessions or classes about what to teach the next time around, many people have said, well, let's talk about and teach the, the prophets. And I would love to do that, except that you can't do the prophets all by themselves. You've got to talk about the monarchy because there is a balance there. And if you talk just about the prophets, you lose sight of why did they come on scene and why did they disappear after the 5th century. It's because the conditions of Judaism changed dramatically during the uh, in the beginning of the third period and changed again at the beginning of the fourth period. And it was during the third period that the majority of the idolatry and the apostasy existed. And that is why they ended up in Babylon. So when you read the prophets, you've got to read the corresponding uh, writings from the first or second book of Kings or Chronicles to see what was going on at the same time and who was in power. Now, in your handout that I gave you the first week, you have a listing <coughs> of the various kings that existed during that monarchy period. Okay? And if you, I believe you have a list of the prophets as well. If you match up the time period of the kings with the time period of the prophets, you'll start out with Amos, and then Hosea, and then first Isaiah. And that is because each one of those prophets had a specific role in God's plan of salvation in combating the apostasy and idolatry that was going on. And so it's that balance that is far more important than looking at either one of those groups of people by themselves. You need to see how one affected the other. At Christmas time, 
you all hear, and I'm sure you can all remember and practically recite the dialogue between Isaiah and King Ahaz. Alright? Ahaz was a king of the southern kingdom who felt that he couldn't rely on God and wanted to develop an alliance with Egypt against the Assyrians. Alright? And Isaiah warns him that that is not what God wants. God wants him to rely on God. And Ahaz refuses or ignores him. And so Isaiah says, I will give you a sign. Ask for a sign, anything. And God will give it to you. And Ahaz replies, I will not tempt the Lord my God. And so Isaiah says, very well, I will give you the sign that God wishes. And this will be the sign. A woman or a maiden will be with child and bear a son. And he shall be named Emmanuel. You've all heard that many times. Every Christmas you hear that over and over. Okay? That all came out between the dialogue between Isaiah and King Ahaz. And it is in the second book of Kings. And it is also repeated somewhat in uh, the writings of the prophet Isaiah as well. But you see, if you don't understand where that comes from and what the background is, when you just read it out of the book of Isaiah, you're not really going to get the whole picture. That is what we're trying to do, is to see you get the whole picture. So that's why teaching the prophets takes a long period of time. It's a very interesting subject, but I would dare say it would take the better part of two years to do it correctly. Okay? Let's get down to the Deuteronomy. Now, this is a different Deuteronomy, okay? Deuteronomy-canonical. Deuteronomy-canonical books. These are the books that are included in our Catholic Bibles. But they are not included in many of the Protestant Bibles or if they are, they're in a separate section called Apocrypha, meaning other books. Okay. And these are 1 and 2 Maccabees, Tobit, Judith, Sirach, Wisdom, Baruch, and parts of Daniel, and Esther. And the reason for that is that in the second century, the Jews that had migrated out of Palestine to other locations in the Mideast and North Africa, they demanded that the Hebrew scriptures be translated into Greek, which was the language of the elite at the time. And this went on for a while, but eventually <laughs> there were 70 men 
chosen. And that figure is somewhat debatable. It's either 70 or 72, but it doesn't make that much difference. Were chosen to take all of the Hebrew scriptures and translate them into Greek. At the same time, they decided that there were a few other books that were already written in Greek. And so when this translation was put together, these other books were included. Well, the Hebrew people back in Palestine didn't like that. They wanted their uh, sacred scriptures by this time, 2nd century B.C., to remain uh, undefiled, so to speak. And so they would not accept the Greek version, which we call the Septuagint version from the word 70. All right, from those 70 men that did the translation. So they would not accept those six uh, books plus a few writings from Daniel uh, and Esther that were added. <clears throat> so there's always been this uh, breach, you might say. All right, set that aside for a moment. In the 16th century, when Martin Luther broke away from the Catholic Church and broke away from a lot of Catholic traditions, one of the things that he did was take the Catholic Bible, tear it in half, and throw away the Old Testament, he went back and established the Greek, I mean the Hebrew version of the Old Testament, and added those two together. The same New Testament that we have, but the Hebrew version of the Old Testament, which did not include these books. And that is why the Protestant Bibles do not have those books. But lately, in the last 20, 30 years, many of the translations of the <clears throat> Old Testament Bibles have picked up these books now and added them in a separate section called Apocrypha. But that is why we have a difference between some Protestant Bibles and some Catholics. I think it is a loss to those who don't have those books because they are beautiful literature, uh, beautiful writings, and worthy of reviewing and reading. Okay. <clears throat> yes, yes. In most cases, the Greek Orthodox uses the Catholic version. Yes, yes. Jose? One and two chronicles. I had one and two Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. What Jose is saying here is that chronicles goes by a different uh, name, but it's still the same books. Yeah. Okay. All right. That's not unusual. Okay. Uh, <coughs> any other questions? The Protestant Luther would. Martin Luther went back and grabbed the Hebrew version. It probably, beside the books, probably a lot of the writing was different because a couple of hundred years had evolved in there. Yes, yes. Has that been merged at all with ours? No. What Dick is saying is that if you take the Hebrew version of one of the acceptable writings that are in both books, 
and you put them side by side, there will be some differences. Yes. Not major, but some noticeable differences. Yes. And that remains that way. Also, in the book of Psalms, whether it be Catholic, Protestant, or Jewish, the numbering system will often differ. And that is because some translations, they've taken some psalms that are real long and split them into two, and others that are kind of short, and they'll condense them. But they still all have 150 psalms. But be careful. If you're taking a Protestant Bible and a Catholic Bible, and you try to look up the same psalm in each of those Bibles, you might be one off. That's about all it is, is one number off. Okay, so if you don't find it in one, look at either the, the number psalm before or after. Okay. But there's still 150 in all Bibles. Even Christ himself mentions 150 in one of the Gospels. Yeah. Yes, Frank? Well, all right, the King James Bible... There's a very long story, um, which I don't have time to get into, but and it's very interesting. There is a book written out on the history of the King James Bible. Um, up until around the 13th century, I believe it is, the Catholic Vulgate was the only Bible accepted. Okay? But little by little... Uh, the English-speaking people wanted it translated. And the church would not give them permission. So there was a group of people in Geneva, Switzerland, who developed an English translation of the Catholic Vulgate. Well, that didn't set too well with the people in England. And it started almost a war in itself. I'm giving you sort of the quick version, okay? So it was King James who, in trying to avoid uh, a civil war over a religious subject, decided and uh, sort of commissioned a group of people to create the King James version of the Bible. Okay. And some people mistakenly say St. James. It isn't. It's King James I, the king who succeeded Elizabeth I. Okay. Alright. Yes, Jose? The interpretation of Genesis, can you say in general that when God is presented as invisible, like in the priestly tradition, that is more recently written than the Yahweh yeah, tradition, when, when God is presented as the Lord God, Yahweh, not, not elevated. Yes, yes. So okay. why is it that in the, uh, 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 what you call it, in the, uh, uh, Genesis, uh, why don't you have that anthropomorphic God uh, more rooted? The anthropomorphic God is more interesting than the biblical God. Well, you're right. And that's, that is because an, uh, an entirely group of different group of people wrote the creation stories, the priestly group who held God 
in a much more uh, spiritual way. So what Hosea is saying here is that in the <clears throat> in the creation stories, God is not presented in the same way that he is presented uh, almost like a human being with divine powers in other parts of the Bible. Uh, he is presented more in a spiritual say, way. And that is because that's the difference between the priestly group who wrote the creation stories and, for example, the Yahwist uh, people who presented God more as a human being with superpowers. That's the term Jose used, anthrop- anthropomorphic. Okay. That's what it means. When was the English version of the Catholic Latin Vulgate? It was much later than that. I don't really know when the English version was created of the Vulgate. Probably somewhere around the early 15th century. Yes, it wasn't until after the development of the printing press that the English version was developed. Oh, well, that's still that's still the case. And, and the Latin is still the official language of the Vatican. Whenever they hold a consistory or uh, a synod, all of it is conducted in Latin. All the uh, documents are in Latin and then translated into various languages later. Yes, Susan? Well, pretty much as they are today. Some people accepted them and some people didn't. Yeah. Uh, Because by that time, they were 200 years old, roughly. Yeah. Yeah. Susan's question was, in Jesus' time, how were the Deuteronomy Got me saying it now. Deuterocanonical books accepted. And I said, some people did and some people didn't. You know, it was depending on how strongly you were to the Jewish law. And as we know, the closer the people were to Jerusalem, the stronger that bind was. Further out, it was less so. Any other questions? Yes, Carl. Okay. Uh, it says, You're not referring to yourself. Yeah. <laughs> right. I was thinking because that I have seen your father here, like an eight-year-old. I was reading at the end of Chronicles. Uh, God spoke to David, and David asked God why I can't build the temple, and God told him that you cannot. God was pleased with him. And then in Chronicles 2, God talked to Solomon, because Solomon was the son, and Solomon asked God, my question is, did God talk, how did God talk to them? I mean, it's like, like they were talking, answering a question. They didn't see God. How was the conversation going? Well, let's, let's explain that to everyone. What Cora is saying here, in the second book, second book of Chronicles, isn't it? Well, both of them, really. Yes. Uh, it was David who wanted to build the temple, the great temple. 
God said no. He wanted David to build himself a palace and that he would leave the temple to his son. And later, uh, he then tells Solomon that Solomon will be responsible for building the temple. Right. Now, Korah's question is, how did God speak to David and Solomon? Like we are talking to each other now? No. It is all inspired. In other words, the Holy Spirit would speak to them. God is not coming down with an audible voice and saying, Oh, Solomon, here it is. I'm being facetious, but you know what I mean. Even today, God does speak to you, to me. When you are praying, you may not realize it. But then again, you may realize it. And let me give you an example. I won't, I won't name names, uh, or point fingers. But there was a question asked, there, there was a question asked of me last, in the last session. When it came to the subject of the book of life, and in the book of Revelation, it talks about only the people whose name is recorded in the book of life, will go to heaven. Alright? And this person asked me, well, how do you get your name into that book? (laughs) And I was stunned. I thought, Lord, help me. I've never been asked in all my years. I've never been asked that question before. I said, all right, Lord, here goes. I opened my mouth and out came these words. You write it on that book yourself when you accept Jesus Christ and are baptized. I couldn't have thought of a better answer, a more realistic answer than that. That is the Holy Spirit speaking through me to this person. It could not have been anything else because I had never been asked that question or even thought about the answer. And yet that is the perfect answer. So you see, God does speak to us. You may not always realize it, but he does. You have to be open. And there are times, particularly in prayer, when you will realize that he is speaking to you. Yeah. Another time, just recently, I had been thinking about a particular question. I won't go into the details. But here I am early in the morning, and I'm only half awake, you know, and half sleeping. And the answer comes out of a clear blue sky, as clear as day. The perfect answer. And here I am, you know, only half asleep. Boy, I jumped up and had to write that down because I was afraid I might forget. But this is the Holy Spirit speaking to you. And that, I hope, answers your question because that's how all of these 
conversations between God and mankind happen. Obviously, God is not coming down or sending a secretary or getting you on the phone or anything. It is through inspiration. Yes. 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 And it was the great temple that lasted uh, from the time of Solomon, uh, late 9th century B.C. down to 587 B.C. when it was destroyed by the Babylonians. Well, yeah. But if you're honest with yourself, you know that. Yeah. If you're honest with yourself, you'll know when it's you're telling, you know, you're telling God which, what you want to hear. Yes. You say all the conversations, would you include Moses? Yes. Burning bush and all? Well, the burning bush, we don't know. But remember, that happened way back 1,500 years and seven or 800 years before it was written down. How else are people going to write those kinds of things down other than as if God was standing in front of them? You see, God, or rather, when you're writing what you think people were inspired to think, you've got to write it as if God was standing right there face to face. And, of course, in Moses' case, in many cases, he was standing there. Not in the visible shape as we are, because God has no shape. Okay. Um, yes, Jeff? Oh, no, no, no. No. No, 20 years. And the second temple, built by Herod the Great in 46 B.C., took 40, 43 years. 46 years. 46 years, yeah. yeah. See, the more t- closer to today's modern technology, it takes longer and longer. <laughs> of course, that's the permit process. It's getting late. Let's end with a prayer. Lord, help us to always open our minds and our hearts to you in prayer. Help us to cultivate a time and let it become part of our life that we spend it each day with you in prayer. Help us to really see that it is your Holy Spirit that you have given us to guide us throughout our day and not just in matters of of faith or religion. So help us then to open our minds and our hearts to really understand what it is that you want of us and for us. So we thank you for this time together tonight. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.